Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. You guys, we are basically learning how to invest like the best investors in the world, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Um, that's my um, favorite intro. Because that's like, I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah. And this is my daughter, Danielle, who's an attorney, does uh, merging corporation law, mergers, acquisitions, and never wanted to learn to invest from me her whole life. And I'm teaching her via this podcast as a method of forcing discipline on us That's to right. actually do it. Full on peer pressure situation. Um, and, you know, it's turned out to be far more fun than I ever expected. Dad. Me too. I mean, and we're going, I mean, honestly, I can't even believe it. We're on our hundred and... 80th? It's like 81 or something like that. Yeah, 183rd. This is our 183rd podcast. 183rd podcast. Yeah, I think for our 200th episode, we got to do something exciting. Let's do it while we're riding horses. Not that exciting. <laughs> Let's do it um, when we get there. Let's do this one now. What do you say? <laughs> so we're in the midst of talking about owner earnings and how to calculate owner earnings so that we can price properly these public companies, which to me have always seemed like these incredibly impenetrable rows and columns of numbers. And I am not into it, guys. But there are ways to break through the madness. That's right. And one of them is this owner earnings calculation, which comes straight from Warren Buffett. We've been talking about it for a number of episodes so far. So if you're just coming to this, go ahead and listen to this one. But I recommend that you go back and start because at the beginning of the owner earnings episodes, because we're really trying to explain deeply this somewhat um, art. It's an art, this number. And mm -hmm. it's one that proves whether or not I understand the company. And that's what I actually really, really like about it. If I'm comfortable with finding owner earnings, then I know that this company is one that I get what they do. So owner earnings in general are, are, are basically the money we put in our pocket if we are renting out a house that we bought and we get rent that comes in we subtract, you know, the garbage we got to pay for, the garbage collection, the, the maintenance of the lawn, um, the things that the owner of the house has to do in order to not have his tenants stop paying rent or move out. Um, and that would include maintenance as well, right? So we have our normal expenses and then we have capital expenses. So normal expenses are stuff that you just do every year. Um, and capital expenses are stuff that you do once and they last years. Hmm. Um, so in a house, the every year stuff would be, you know, every month you have to pay property or every year you have to pay property taxes. Every month you have to pay the garbage collection, um, the homeowners, if there's one of those association bills, um, you have to pay for, um, you know, up your, your annual upkeep stuff, whatever that is, right? Cleaning the gutters and just different annual things you do. Um, what it doesn't include in total normal expenses would be maintenance items like once in a while replacing a refrigerator, a washer, a dryer, your HVAC system, fixing a roof every 15 years. Those kinds of things are maintenance items. And you have to have a kind of a schedule 
of how you're going to spend that money, what you're going to put out there for maintenance. Um, if you're if you're doing real estate properly, you wouldn't want to just not have any money and all of a sudden have to fix the roof because you might not be able to fix it, right? So you yeah. you, you want to kind of you want to kind of plan your your maintenance to, uh, over time, and so you you're going to do a maybe a fund that you're going to put cash into that you won't be able to access through your bank account. So put it in a cookie jar or something like that. Put it in an envelope that that you keep aside so you won't accidentally spend it. Whatever. As you, what I'm just saying is that you're going to include in your expenditures of cash not only the expenses that you make every single year by clockwork, but also the ones you do occasionally, which are to maintain the house so that you can rent it out. Now, that's really key that you need to understand this difference between those kind of expenses and deciding that you're going to add a, a mother-in-law unit in the garage. So you're going to take the garage from being car space and make it people space and rent the place out as a duplex now. So yeah. now you've got somebody in the That's true. It's an important part of the owner earnings calculation, the maintenance capital expenditures, which is, which is what you're talking about. You're talking right. about the difference between maintenance capital expenditures and growth capital expenditures, right, right, which exactly. is an important distinction. Where we left off last time was moving on from depreciation and amortization to these two mysterious additions in the formula, which are net change colon accounts receivable and net change colon accounts payable. And, and this is getting really scary for me because. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's scary for everybody. Just so you know, we're all scared because these numbers are like, what the heck are they first of all? And why are they in here secondly? And how do they relate to Warren Buffett's formula on page 193 and, of our book Invested? And the, the way most of us look at these numbers is that we just know that the accountants know what they're doing and they are changing the numbers from the income statement to reflect cash flow, to reflect the actual movement of cash in and out of the bank account. And so these next numbers are, that's about as deep as I am, am really comfortable going on our podcast because I feel like if I'm going to go deeper and you're going to start asking me really penetrating questions that what I want to do next is bring an accountant in here that can really answer your question. But I'm scared to do that or I'd have him in here today because it could just be so boring and horrible and completely not able to be understood by anybody, including me, that we haven't done it that way. So let's take a shot and see if I can handle this for you. Uh, yeah, please. That's the best I can do. Um, but I'm warning you, this may not go well. Let me just note that I'm sitting in a WeWork um, co-working space right now. So if you guys are hearing noises around me, I apologize, but this is the place I could do the podcast today. And I'm in New York and I um, am checking out WeWork. So forgive me for the elevator noises and the people talking. Do you know by um, the way that WeWork just became the largest single tenant in New York City? I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. They've rent more space than anybody else. They don't, the weird thing about WeWork in terms of a business is they don't own those buildings. They just yeah, rent I've, the space. I've heard that they're adjusting their business model 
to starting to purchase real estate. Well, they better because it's a dumb business model in my humble opinion. When they yeah, go public, I think you got to be smoking crack to buy into that deal. Because there was recently a Wall Street Journal article that mentioned that they were basically a giant arbitrage scheme. And this was a guy's opinion. But uh, here, I, I think it's worse. I think they're one of these companies that borrows long uh, and then lends short, which is horrible. I mean, effectively, they got to write really long leases in order to rent this space out. And they're renting it out to people who can get out of it in a month. Well, and it's such a classic bubble phenomenon, right? Yeah, that like exactly. a company, I and mean, we're in such a high stock market and a company like this wants to go public desperately, has been talking about going public for a while. I wanted to come check them out because I've been hearing this talk about WeWork and they, it's like so classic, like they go public to get all kinds of investment into their company so that they can then continue this model of just growing, 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 growing until it all bursts. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked into them that much. They're private. Like, I don't know their financials, but uh, it's an interesting one. Very scary. And I'm enjoying being at WeWork today. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's why the thing sounds a little weird. So anyway, onward. Um, so, so here's, here's what we say in our book, Dad. Um, net change in accounts receivable and net change in accounts payable Accounts receivable is when the business is owed money by its customers, and accounts payable is when the business owes its suppliers money. And as these numbers change from year to year, that change either puts money in our pocket, in the owner's pocket, or it takes money out of the owner's pocket. So it can be positive or negative. And the number that's in there indicates only that change from the year before. Right. So there's a definition. Right. But why choose those numbers in particular? Are you trying to, let me back up for a second before you answer that question. In Buffett's definition, which we've printed on page 193 of Invested, he says that what he does is he adds to earnings, depreciation, depletion, amortization, and certain other non-cash charges. Now, the first line or the second line of our formula is depreciation and amortization. Are these numbers trying to get at depletion? No. And depletion is um, a term used for a company that's doing typically a commodity business, and even more typically, it's oil and gas or mining, where you oh. you have um, have put into your asset a certain very theoretically conservative. Uh, estimate of what that mine, oil, re oil field, whatever, gas field has available to you. And those are very rigorously controlled. They're not just some arbitrary guess. So, but they're on your balance sheet. And if those are being depleted year after year by pulling the oil out, then you've got to write that off. Great so, answer. So that's depletion. No, but what he's talking about here that gets really muddy is, quote, and certain other non-cash charges. Yeah. This is where it gets, the wheels come off This is why people have written 30 page white papers about <laughs> his definition and still don't really have <laughs> a lot a of, version. right. So we did one that I can tell you is wrong. So don't even tell us it's wrong because we know it's wrong, um, but it sort of gets at the process and it, it takes out some of the arbitrariness and subjectivity. We're just saying in that little word, certain other non-cash charges, what we're gonna do is we're going to remove or add in the changes 
to receivables and, um, and payables. And the reason for that is because those categories are, are the ones that are probably the most consistent. Um, they're, they're, you shouldn't see gigantic changes in payables and accounts receivables unless something really, really major is happening in the company. Because if you think about it, that's just really the money people owe you. Those, those are accounts receivable when you sold them something. So if you sold them a railway car or an airplane, um, they paid you a down payment and now they owe you the rest of it. Okay. It's accounts okay. receivable and accounts payable is the stuff you owe. So yeah. yeah, you, you bought parts to make the airplane and you owe people for those parts. And one of the things that accounting experts do when they're doing, doing the accounting for the business is they try to encourage the company to pay or to get it, collect its account receivable as fast as possible. Like, let's make everybody pay us in two weeks, right? Or not, let's say we make everybody pay us in a month. And then we pay everybody in two months. And what that does is it, it gives us working capital. We get, get like an extra month worth of working capital to play with and grow our business with without having to borrow it, without having to sell our stock. So this is very clever, way in the weeds, accounting stuff that accountants can do for public companies to help them with their cash. And it's real tweaking, it's real tweaky stuff. Um, for example, an accountant might come in and say, oh, you know, we're, we're collecting all of our accounts receivable in 30 days. Here's, I suggest we collect it in two weeks and we're paying everybody in 60 days, let's pay them in 90. And by stretching everybody out and by forcing everybody in, you create more cash for sort of instantly have another little pile of cash if you can keep that gig going, right? Now, if it shrinks the opposite way, all of a sudden there goes all your cash. So accounts receivable changes and accounts payable changes are sort of part of that process. And to find out where those numbers come from, they go, you go over to the balance sheet. So we get net income off of the, the income statement. We get, um, and depreciation and amortization should be off the income statement too, but often you don't actually see it, but it's in there. Where you get the changes in payables and receivables off the balance sheet, because those things are, are on the balance sheet as receivables and as, uh, as an asset and payables as a liability, right? I get them off of the cash flow statement, though. Right, but those come from They've they come to over. there, yeah, from from the difference between 2016 and 2017 accounts receivables. That's where okay. the changes come from, and and that change can produce positive cash or negative cash, and so what we're doing is if it got positive, we're adding it, um, and if it got negative, we're subtracting it, and so. Those are listed here as um, decrease in receivables. If it's an, a decrease in receivables and it's a positive number, then it went to our benefit. We got extra cash there because we didn't pay some people, or, or sorry, we uh, got paid quicker. And if it's a red number, it's a negative number, uh, we're being stretched out a little bit on collecting. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? And then yeah. kind of, and then yeah, yeah. payables goes the other way. Like an increase in payables comes through as a positive number. Why? Because we're stretching out the amount of time that we're paying people. 
Mm -hmm. Right, so we get that as a positive number. That's a negative number, it's because we're having to pay them sooner. So if we stretch it from 60 to 90, everything being the same year to year, we're gonna see a positive number. Mm -hmm. Suddenly yeah, we have more cash. All right, so basically what we do is we take those two numbers, whatever they are, positive or negative, and we add them to the to the uh, to the uh, net income. So, in other words, we might be adding a positive number, in which case net income goes up, or we might be adding a negative number, in which case net income goes down. I guess I'm trying to understand why <clears throat> why we're adding those back in, because I mean the reason to add the depreciation and amortization is that it's a number that as you said doesn't necessarily accurately reflect the real depreciation that's going on or the real amortization that's going on why are we adding these changes back Be in because the same thing has happened we've treated these things as if um they they were um not producing any real cash changes in the net income statement. So net income is being altered by generally accepted accounting principles to reflect um, what's going on with receivables and payables. And it isn't correct because it isn't directly related to cash. And, yet, and these numbers are directly, they're, they're adjusting net income for the actual cash structure that should land in the bank. Because remember, every, every one of these changes that we're making to net income is adjusting net income so that we know what the real amount of cash went into our bank from our operations. Yeah, yeah. The real amount of cash, the actual cash. Now, if we're going to get deeper than that, I'm going to go get one of my CPA well, I was just about to ask, <laughs> what, 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 what part did you not want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> that's deep already. I'm gonna go get a CPA and drag him in here, and they're gonna they're gonna get beat up by you and me as they try to make sense out of this. Um, so the best thing I can tell you right now is that absolutely what this is doing is removing cash from net income that shouldn't be in there because we didn't actually collect it, and putting cash into net income that should be in there because we did change and collect it. And, and so those two numbers together are the changes that are reflected um, to produce the actual cash number um, rather than the net income number. Hmm. Okay, I feel satisfied with that. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm not sure I could go any deeper than that. I, I once gave a talk at the, the World Trade Center for um, one of Steve Jobs' companies where I was speaking about... This must um, have been a long time ago. Oh, it was a long time ago, yeah. The World Trade Center for one of Steve yeah, Jobs' companies. I think it was 1988 or something like that uh, for Next Computer because I had an investment in uh, a software company that was doing document management and Next was trying to sell their computers based on you know the good kind of software you could, all the cool things you could do with it. And this yeah. document management system was a big part of that. So I was making a presentation to, gosh, it must have been a hundred... Uh, or more, heads of IT, heads of IT from all these American Express layman companies. And these guys were all people who were doing um, big mainframe computers, hmm. right? 
and had very little experience with uh, client server computer systems, which the next was a fabulous example of. And so I knew a little bit like this much, and it was just a little more than they did. <laughs> and I could get in and talk about this all day. And they would never, it's sort of like one of the next guys said, man, you're like a big lake that's about six inches deep. I said, yeah, exactly. And these guys are like one inch deep and they don't know. And they're asking questions that I can actually answer. Um, but if we were to go deeper than that, then I'd have to turn it over to you guys. And, you know, I wouldn't know what you're saying either. So this is a little bit like that. I'm, I'm, I'm six inches deep. And so far, I haven't got a question from you that I can't answer. But if you knew more about this, you yeah. can start drilling in on me and I'd probably stumble. So if people are asking questions about this that we can't answer, dig in and, and shoot them to us and we will be happy to get a pro to respond. And maybe, Danielle, you could put it into a newsletter or something like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, my other question is, are there any... I know we are trying to keep this formula simple and that's The answer why. is yes, there are. <laughs> a lot of other things we could have put in there. Yeah, right? <laughs> like the whole point here is like to add it back in to right. not have this number reflect things that were merely accounting choices. Yeah. And I imagine there's more than this. There's more than this. I mean, you could make an argument that what we really want to do is change the, you know, put in changes to working capital. What you really want to do is figure out uh, you know, all of the things that are on this list of things for cash flow that you put in or take out that result in this in this uh, row on your cash flow statement called cash from operating activities. But we what we're trying to do is try to figure out how much cash will I have actually in my pocket. And a lot of these things are they're, they're cash changes that you'd have to leave in there the way you kind of have to leave money in there to take care of that refrigerator. And once you paid for the refrigerator, you know you're not going to get any money in there for a long time. And it's a little more on that order of these things are going to change up and down, and I don't really want to count them as cash. Huh. Although they are huh. accurately cash in and out, I kind of don't want to count them. Let's just not go there and assume that those things are going to work themselves out in the wash. That's the best I can tell you about it. Yeah, that makes sense. And since we're also looking at the value of this business relative to free cash flow, which does include all of those items, then I feel comfortable that we will have looked at the business value with the accurate cash from operating activities uh, correctly done from, from generally accepted accounting principles, and we will have gotten another picture there. Yeah, that's a great point. What Deb's referring to is that there's another method of pricing a company in our book, Invested, that is based on free cash flow, which is a different calculation than the owner earnings one. And, but it's still trying to get at this question of how much cash does the business have? And one of the great questions we got from our listeners is what's the difference between owner earnings and free cash flow and why do they use different numbers? So by the way, guys, I've been getting your questions. We're gonna answer a bunch of them. And I think probably as we go through this, we're answering them, but um, 
what I want to do is go through this formula to the end and then we'll get to I know we also promised Fiat Chrysler and we'll get to some of your specific questions but I do want to go through this whole formula yeah before we do this so there what we're just to reiterate what we're trying to do here is to get you to look at um, <clears throat> the actual cash that you would put in your pocket as an owner if you were to look at your business the way you would look at it like a piece of real estate that you own we want to try to put a public business into that frame because that frame is very comfortable for most of us like we just feel really confident that we understand that we got rent coming in we got expenses going out and we've got money left over yeah that's kind of that's really what we want to do for your bottom line when we're talking about owner earnings and that's the difference between an owner earnings calculation and a free cash flow calculation for payback time to figure out the payback time of the business. The payback time calculation, and for that wait, matter, wait, wait, wait. you got to say all that again. Okay. Because you went, you, 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 your point was at the end, and I was moving along with you, and then I did an aside. So, yeah. okay. So the difference between looking at this. Uh, owner earnings versus looking at free cash flow. If that okay. was the question. So, Brian, we're answering your question right now. Right, here we go. The <laughs> difference is that free cash flow is um, does not require any subjectivity from us whatsoever uh, to determine what it is. It's just take the accounting numbers, do math, and, and you get the answer. Um, whereas, but the answer you're getting with free cash flow includes you paying taxes and it includes building the mother-in-law unit in the house it includes growth growth and what we want to do is have a different view of the price we should pay for this business than one which is speculating about continued growth and which is including taxation which can vary radically as you've seen recently radical variation based on what the tax laws are and so on um, so we're going to knock it all down to, we're going to look at a piece of rental real estate. We're taking off what we actually pay out in cash after what we get in in cash and what we got left, we can put in our pocket before taxes and before we try to grow anything. And, and the reason we put owner difference. earnings first in our book invested is because it's trying to get at that pure number. And the reason Buffett created this owner earnings formula and told anybody about it is because it annoys him so i mean this is my interpretation but it's he seems very annoyed by these changes in the tax law and changes in accounting that cause him to report things about his business that he doesn't think are accurate and so i think that's why he not only created this formula for himself but told us about it he didn't tell us much <laughs> But he told us the basics. He told us the basics. And he's, the main thing is he's telling us to go do it. And what yeah. we're doing is giving you a way to go do it that's probably not accurate for any specific business, but it'll put you in the right ballpark. And it'll get you thinking in terms of, okay, if I really understand my business, what would be the cash I can put in my pocket at the end of the year? And give you some questions to ask people at that business, right? Yeah. I mean, I get so excited about owner earnings because, and I realize this sounds paradoxical, but go with me, because I'm not good with accounting numbers and accounting statements. And I get it that owner earnings formula requires 
an understanding of the accounting statements and is, you know, takes a bit of work. I get it. But compared to me being bamboozled by coming up with a free cash flow number that is based on some kind of accounting rule that I don't know about most likely, or like, like the tax, um, the changes in the tax code that recently came out that caused all these companies to report higher earnings, despite having done nothing to actually support their businesses better. It was just that they paid less taxes, which, which, I mean, which, is, which is good growth, in right? many ways, but like, you got to know about that, you know? Yeah, yeah um, exactly. And so, whereas owner earnings takes all of that out of there. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And so, as like paradoxically, as somebody who's 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 aware that I am not great with this stuff, um, I want to boil that stuff out so that I know that I have a view of what they're actually doing about their business, not due to some tax change, not due to an accounting change, not due to something else, due to what these management are doing about their own business. That is beautifully said. That's exactly right. And, and, and I just want to massively emphasize that you want to think about it the way we think about a piece of real estate, because almost all of us are happy to do yeah. that. Do you think about it sometimes like a piece of real estate? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so, let me, let me add all? one more thing that I do, thinking about it, as a piece of real estate that I own, I am calculating the um, kind of the price I'm willing to pay for this business, this, this house, right? The price I'm willing to pay, I'm calculating that before I pay taxes. So I'm figuring out what I'm willing to pay for that house based on owner earnings coming into me. And I'm not considering that I'm going to pay taxes on the owner earnings, although I know I will. Tell me more about that. Okay. Why, why, why make that mental leap? Because you do have to pay taxes. Right. Because the tax bill that I'm going to pay differs drastically from the tax bill that I might have paid 30 years ago. I might have been in paying zero taxes 30 years ago or 40 years ago, uh, just starting out not making much money. Um, I might want to tell the real estate agent, you know, I'm looking for a company. I'm looking for, for a house that produces this kind of return on my investment. And if I start throwing my tax bill in there, mine could be very different one year to another. Yeah, I'm going to remove a variable here. One more reason to get the wrong price on a business would be the taxation variable. So let's yeah. get rid of it. Yeah, I mean, like I just said, like there are changes in the tax code, boom. Changes you in the tax code, boom, have made, made tax to make more money. Yeah, and I want to think, you know, about a piece of real estate the way I look at it today, the same way I looked at it 40 years ago. I want to look through the same lens all the time so I have that kind of consistency in my investments. And I want to look through that lens whether I'm looking at a farm, whether I'm looking at a, a commercial building, a single family home, um, a franchise that I might want to buy, a laundromat that I want to buy my own business that somebody want to buy from me, what it's worth compared, you know, and I want to see a public company the same way. So we're going to take Charlie at face value here when he's basically saying, Hey, we look at this stuff like a private business. That's it. So you don't look at taxation when you're looking at private businesses, you're looking at pre-tax numbers. Okay. So we want to get taxation out of there and taxation is often a big number 
uh, that's been taken out of net income. But we're going to put it back. So. Yeah, it's 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 something people, including me, it, I mean, I, I get it, and and yet I still am often like, wait a second, but we have to pay taxes. But you just got to remember that taxes change and can be affected by a lot of other stuff going oh, yeah. on with the company. And, um, and, and the reason to put it back in there is not because they won't have to pay taxes. It's because we don't want to worry about some artificial changes up or down in the amount of money the company has due to some tax stuff. Right. Now, uh, it sounds weird, right? Because like they're going to have to pay the taxes. And I get it. But I don't know. How do you how do you deal with that? I mean, they're going to have to pay the taxes. They are going to have to pay the taxes. I mean, I suppose it's just like they're going to have to pay the depreciation and they're going to have to deal with those changes in the accounts receivable. Well, we're, Let's let's not confuse taxation with de depreciation because no, they are gonna, we are going to pay depreciation and we're going to take that out in a second. And what we're going to take out is what the maintenance portion of that depreciation is. So we're going to get there. But taxation is a little different than that. It is so variable on legislation, on um, what kind of... Uh, what kind of depreciation schedule a company might be on. There's all sorts of things that will affect the actual taxes that a company is paying. A retail company might pay less or more than, than a manufacturing company. Um, so we're, what we're going to do is we're just going to try to put these all on sort of equal footing pre-tax. You know, and, Buffett doesn't include taxes. He doesn't mention them in his definition either. Right. That's interesting. Right, right, right. It is interesting. Um, but I'm taking it, I'm basically what I'm doing is I'm putting this, and this is what I wanted to do in the book, is to put this on exactly the same footing as we would use for any kind of, of house that we're buying, okay? Mm. Because that's simple. That's simple. Yeah. I just All keep right. thinking back to Buffett's letter after the tax code change, and he made such a big point of saying, we look like we are doing so well this year mm -hmm. and i want everybody to know that it is not due to anything we did and i just thought first of all like how extraordinary that somebody calls that out i mean of course he did right but like there aren't a lot of ceos calling that out there's a lot of ceos going we are so amazing thank you like yeah. u.s government wow we are incredible like <laughs> we are really doing well this year yeah um, and and so, so I, 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 I get the idea here of putting them, of putting them back into this calculation, despite him not mentioning it. I don't think he mentions it here um, in the definition per se, but he does give an example. I was trying to find out which letter he gave an example in. It might have been 2016. Let me, let me just take a quick look. I tell you, Danielle, I get shivers. I get goosebumps when I want to know something like this from, I don't know what year that report was, but I know I read it, right? I got this vague idea. Uh -huh. And instead of having to get in my car when you were a baby, <laughs> I had to get in my car and drive to the library because we couldn't afford to pay $50,000 a year to Value Line to get the data individually. So I'd have to go to the library. I'd go to the UCSD library. I'd go to the town library and I would find value line and hope nobody ripped those pages out and go look it up, right? 
Or I would write the company alternatively and say, send me your annual report. And three weeks later, I might get it, you know, or a month later. Now I just have this question real time. And I click a, I click on Berkshire Hathaway. I say, give me the 2016 letter because I think that's what it was. I'm doing this real time right now. Here comes the 2016 letter. And I'm going to put in a, a search word farm. And uh, let's see. I think no, it is. I don't think. No. Let's see. Uh, Berkshire. Then it's 2015. It's not okay. 17. 2015. It's not 2016. Check this out. This is real time. We're doing this. I am now sending a letter to Berkshire, and sure they're answering it. And here it comes. The, it's just the amazing. The strides that have been made. You guys I mean, need to, to take fair, advantage of this. That was a long time ago. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was yesterday. <laughs> it was yesterday. Unreal. Jeez. Um, and then, of course, we can never find anything. So I'm going to go over the formula because we kind of moved into income tax without really saying it. So here's the formula, guys. And this is, again, in our book, Invested. Um, formula is on page 194 for owner earnings. So it's net income plus depreciation and amortization, which we talked about last time in great detail, then plus net change accounts receivable and net change accounts payable, and then plus income tax. And that's what we were just talking about. And those numbers are all pullable straight from the financial statements. So that's nice. Like those parts are not that hard. And what I do is I go, I know my dad thinks that this is silly, but I go straight to the annual reports, the 10K, same thing. And I actually pull the numbers straight from the PDF of those reports. There's probably an easier way to do it. I'm sure there is. Many smart people have thought about it, but I just I'm such a freaked out scaredy cat that I want to make sure I got the numbers from the source. So that's what I do. And it doesn't take me all that long. I literally like copy and paste it over into a spreadsheet. And then I have it for uh, whenever I want to look back at my calculation. Now, there is one last element to this formula, which is plus maintenance capital expenditures. And that's the one that you can't get straight from the financial statements. And it's the one that we've gotten the most questions about. It's the one that is really the art rather than the science. So we're going to get to that one and we're going to talk about how to do that because it's an art. So it's a little bit of like, well, over time with practice, with investing practice, you sort of start to feel it out and get a sense of it. And I think a lot of that is we can talk about some various companies and how we would find their maintenance capital expenditures. And then you can kind of get a sense of like, okay, here's how Phil does it. And then you can go do it on companies that are in your circle of competence and see if you're getting the same kinds of feelings of like, all right, I think I've got like my arms around this. I understand the company, which is, this is, by the way, this is where, you know, if you understand the company. So dad. Okay. So what'd you just say? Sorry. I was, <laughs> It was a beautiful explanation of the world. I need, to, I need to listen to the podcast. Okay, so I found the letter. It was I, I read it in 2014, but it was the 2013 letter. 
Oh, you had to go way back. Yeah, so 2013 letter. And I'm just going to quote this to you, okay? So in 1986, I purchased a 400-acre farm located 50 miles north of Omaha from the FDIC. It cost me $280,000. Wait a second, what are you talking about here? I'm reading Buffett's letter to his shareholders at Berkshire from the year 1983. No, from the year 2013. Excuse me, from the year 2013. <laughs> You're stuck in 1983. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, but why, why are you reading this? Because it, it goes to the uh, question about whether Buffett's taking taxes out or not. Ah, thank you. All right. Okay. Please continue. So, 1986, bought a 400-acre farm near Omaha, considerably for less than what the failed bank had lent against the farm a few years earlier. I knew nothing about operating a farm, but I have a son who loves farming, and I learned from him how many bushels of corn and soybeans the farm would produce and what the operating expenses would be. From these estimates, I calculated the normalized return from the farm to then be about 10% on the $280,000 that he paid for it. In other words, $28,000 were the normalized return from the farm. This is I all pre-tax. follow these numbers. Okay. So basically what he's saying is, I paid $280,000 for the farm. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. He's also saying that he checked with somebody who knew something about it how much corn this thing should produce and soybeans it should produce and what it would cost to produce them. Uh -huh. All right. So whatever it was. And the net income from that was $28,000. Okay. Pre-tax. Yeah. We, well, you told me all this stuff and we put it in the book, I think. I think. And so we're back to the no tax thing from Buffett. There's no taxes coming off this farm. This is a privately held farm that Buffett owns. So they're not, you know, calculating taxes into this because his tax bill could vary all over the place. He's looking for a normalized return. And he's saying the normalized return on the farm would be about 10%. In other words, he's making $28,000 of owner earnings and multiplying that times 10 to get the price he should pay for the farm. That's how he decided how to, how to buy it. Then he goes on and talks about the same thing with a building that the RTC was owning in the 1990s. And he basically said he joined a small group and they bought this building um, where the unleveraged current yield from the property was 10%. In other words, not including a, you know, taxation, not uh, including a mortgage or anything, that they decided to pay a, a, a price for this building in New York that would be a 10% yield, uh, that the cash flow would give them a 10% yield. So these are two examples where Buffett, as far as I can tell, didn't use any taxation at all. Certainly didn't use it in that real estate deal in New York because there's so much depreciation in the building. Um, so just looking at the unleveraged, untaxed yield, and that came out to 10%. That? I didn't hear you say anything about taxes. Um, an educated guess. Okay, educated guess. Okay. And I also know that when we look at virtually any piece of real estate out there for years of doing real estate, and you know, we all we buy every kind of business we can think of, right? Including real estate businesses, which means a house, land, whatever. Um, and we know that the general understanding in the real estate industry when you're buying a property is to use cap rates to estimate whether it's a good deal or not. So you say, well, this is a 
five cap. This is a 10 cap. This is an eight cap. And those are all pre-tax numbers. So I'm making the assumption here that Buffett's doing oh, the same the thing. Oh, the 10 cap. So the, the 10 cap is our first pricing method that we offer in our book, Invested. Which is and, what we're talking about right now. And we, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I'm like trying to give some context to what you're saying. Um, uh, and, we're going to have to do another podcast on this, aren't we? Well, we're not going to get into the 10 cap right now, but I just want to give some context about what you're talking about here. We're um, deep into the 10 cap right now. We're going down through the cash flow. We're trying to understand whether we should use taxation or not. We're determining that we're not going to use taxes. So we're going no, to add them back in. What he's talking about <laughs> is that the 10 cap is a standard real estate method of pricing. Yes. And the 10 cap in the standard real estate method of pricing does not include income taxes. Yes. And owner earnings being used for the 10 cap, therefore, also should not include income taxes. Yes. And while I feel like I'm on very strong ground in Buffett's 2013 letter about the farm and the building in terms of this tax issue, I could be wrong relative to public companies. I, Buffett hasn't said they take it in or don't put it in or not. Um, and I'm just treating a public company the way we would look at real estate. And that could be wrong. And I get arguments from good accountants about this who are saying that it's wrong because you don't get owner earnings pre-tax from a public company. Mm -hmm. They pay the tax. And then if you were to get a whole dividend on owner earnings, it would be post-tax. And then you'd get taxed again yeah. later. So there's an ongoing discussion about this. What I'm trying to do by pulling out... Uh, the taxation is to look at the business without any sort of overlay of government regulation affecting what I'm going to pay for it. And that might be naive, but I think it makes a good, uh, it makes a good comparison to what we could do for a piece of real estate. And I love doing that. I love, I will jump on a 10 cap piece of real estate, um, anywhere here where I can judge the, the quality of the neighborhood. Right. And I'll do that in a heartbeat. Why? Because even if the property doesn't go up over the next 20 years, I'm making 10% a year. Go do that in a bond secure. And you can't. So, you know, that's a good deal. And that's exactly how I want us to look at owning a business here. One more way of valuing a business. So, all right, that's enough for today. I probably put you all to sleep. I apologize. We'll go a little more into this next time when we dive into... Um, now we can move capex. to where you wanted to start the yeah. maintenance, maintenance capital capex. expenditures, which uh, is which is the, like that. This is what I was saying, Dad, when you weren't listening to me. This is where the art comes in. Yes. And the understanding of the business comes in because all those other numbers we can just pull, and they're very easy to pull. Right. This is the one that people go, huh? What is some maintenance? Okay, we'll get into that next time. All right. Okay, time to go play. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because 
I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. 